things up a little bit every year. Welcome to another edition of Open Mic. I'm Mike Morse here with Kevin Dietz. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm fantastic. How are you? Good. I'm excited about today's show. Well, you know, Bill Proctor is our guest, and I've been watching Bill, or I was, I watched Bill growing up on Channel 7. Um, he was always a, a, a great reporter, a calming influence, had some great stories. I, I don't know why, but I remember it well. And um, he was there for 33 years until he retired a few years back. And uh, he's working on some interesting things in the Innocence Arena, as you know. It's a passion of mine, and I know yours, and we've been having some really good shows that I've been learning a ton about, and I've been digging in, learning about all the innocent projects out there. So I'm looking forward to hearing from him. I want to hear his thoughts on what's been going on in this world of ours the last couple of weeks. So let's, let's bring Bill Proctor onto the show. Hi, guys. How's it going? Hey, Bill. How are you, Bill? Hanging in there for an old guy. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to have you. And, um, you know, we've, we, we got to you because we did uh, at least three podcasts. Uh, Aaron Salter, um, interesting, sweet man, horrible story, uh, who was wrongfully convicted and spent, I believe, nine years in prison until he got out. And Kenny Wanenko, we've now done two podcasts with him who had another horrible story, wrongful conviction. Um, as you dig deeper and deeper into these stories, it's mind-blowing all the things that go wrong or that can go wrong. And talking to the, we talked to a juror on his case. We talked to the prosecutor to put him away. Um, the bad lawyering that goes on as a lawyer is fascinating and heartbreaking to me. So I know that you got into it a few years back, and I know you covered a lot of stories, but I want to hear from you what made you form provinginnocence.org, and why are you spending your retirement years helping to free innocent people? Well, some, uh, some very nice folks uh, talked to me, I guess, about the, uh, the case of Timogen Kensu. Um, his name is Frederick Thomas Freeman. Uh, he's been in since uh, the mid-80s uh, for the murder of a young college student up in Port Huron, uh, the victim, uh, Scott Macklem. Um, and because I was making as much noise as I could about that particular case, uh, some folks at Wayne State University um, and some others uh, came and we, we were talking about it, my level of frustration and trying to do as much as I could alone. And we came to the conclusion that maybe uh, a team could help. And so it uh, took us a little while to, uh, to get to be a 501c3. And so um, I'm, uh, I'm no longer with the organization, but they still list me as the founder. Uh, and um, they've, uh, they've been doing well over the last uh, 12 years or so. These days, they're actually giving money to people who leave the prison system and have uh, not even pocket change for a bus. Uh, so we give them a few hundred dollars and... Uh, they at least have a foundation to uh, start their life over again. But Proving Innocence at this point is a support organization to help those who have been uh, released from prison and wrongful conviction is, uh, is their concern. So, okay, I didn't know that. So your 
your organization is mainly focused on helping the wrongfully convicted after they get exonerated? After they come out, yes. We've done some investigation work too. Um, I mean, there have been some several iterations and changes over the years, but uh, it, it all depends on what this relatively small board of folks who are who are like-minded and working really hard to try to get something done, what they can do. Um, uh, these days, um, mine is kind of a public advocacy organization, and it's called Seeking Justice, um, the reason for the hat. But uh, it's seekingjusticebp.com is where it can be found online. And what we do is is talk about what is current, uh, what is interesting, what is really sad in some of these uh, uh, releases. Uh, we, over the last uh, few years, have been to a couple of the Innocence Conferences. We've talked to a number of exonerees. Um, I consider Barry Sheck a friend. I mean, it's it's one of those things where if you're plugging into the ultimate humanity of, uh, of the struggle for uh, a just criminal justice system, uh, that's where you need to be. You need to understand that um, uh, criminal law is uh, it, it may be a, a well-written body uh, from legislators and others. Um, uh, the history certainly uh, is, is solid in lots of different ways, but the problems come when you understand that all of this is a human endeavor, there are people who are in place to essentially apply what is supposed to be um, a reasonable, balanced justice system. Unfortunately, people don't necessarily always do what they're supposed to do. And um, I found that there's even a level of criminality when it comes to the failures of uh, police, uh, the failures of prosecutors, um, bad attitudes, uh, politics. I mean, there, there's so much um, of, uh, of what can influence a person's decisions. Um, and that's why we have so many problems in the criminal justice system. What did you say? I, I, I'm confused. So the, I wasn't aware. Wayne State University Law School has an organization right now? No, no. no. I, I mentioned the Wayne State thing because my original connection and our bringing together proving innocence uh, had to do with an introduction through uh, Wayne State University's uh, law school and the School of Sociology. So it was a matter of people taking classes, knowing me. Uh, we had some conversations, we had some lunches, and came to terms to create proving innocence. And then later, here later in in, in life, uh, seeking justice is uh, is my current handle. And, so in uh, Michigan, in Michigan, you have the Innocent Project in Ann Arbor at U of M Law School. And you have the one at Cooley Law School or Michigan State University um, Innocent Project. Those are the only two that I know of that have lawyers actively working on these cases in Michigan. Is there any others? That, that, no, that's, a, that's correct. Um, and any other lawyers essentially are working out of their own offices, their own practices. Uh, but the University of Michigan Innocence Clinic uh, is essentially a UM law school uh, created uh, element for teaching young lawyers. Um, I guess there is a selection process where folks who have an interest in, in, in going through all the elements of how wrongful convictions take place and for them to work really hard to try to, uh, to, try to reverse them. So it is a teaching organization, but those young uh, uh, law students end up in court and essentially representing people who they feel are, uh, are qualifying to get themselves in front of a judge to argue their innocence. Now, that's an innocence clinic, so it is a teaching function. Over at Cooley Law, and I guess it's it's now, is it is it Western Michigan Cooley? 
but I guess um, uh, they um, are connected to the Innocence Project in New York. That's how the, the distinction is made. And at the University of Michigan uh, Innocence Clinic, they look at everything but DNA. Over at the Innocence Project at Cooley, they are looking for DNA evidence. And so you literally have uh, two sides of the actual innocence argument claim and support at the two universities. One, uh, where, where all kinds of forensics are evaluated, um, DNA in particular, and over at the University of Michigan, uh, they, they're looking for people who are stepping away from uh, uh, previous statements. So if they're, if they're stepping away from uh, an identification or some element that got someone convicted and that person was not supposed to be convicted, then that's where they work at the University of Michigan. Or, or wrongful confessions and, and things yeah. like that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So so I mean, so it's I'm glad you laid that groundwork because it's a little confusing. You know, the innocent project, yours is proving innocent, theirs is project innocent, uh, innocent project uh, that Barry Sheck started in New York at Cardoza right. University, um, all stemming from really the OJ trial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, it's funny. I, I've talked to Barry about that. I, I actually had a camera in front of him once and pressed him um, with the notion that, hey, um, with your getting off a guilty O.J. Simpson, and I guess I can say that as a citizen, uh, getting him off, did you end up working on the innocence work? None of us an atonement. And, you know, we we laugh about it, but it's a very serious thing for, uh, for Barry. And uh, I think it had everything to do with his work as a professor, uh, his partner, um, and uh, and how they understood the power of DNA evidence and how it was going to essentially change um, so many elements of the criminal justice system, and how it became extremely important. It is foundational at this point, and I think only beginning in like 1988-89 was DNA evidence actually accepted in the criminal justice system as evidence that could be brought in and argued in court. So, you know, it's it, it's been a long road. I mean, the, the iterations of the improvements in the criminal justice system have been huge. I mean, we, we have a report from a scientific body over only just a few years back that essentially drove a number of changes and reforms in the criminal justice system because of the history of bad science in police work, in prosecutions, and in final verdicts that never should have taken place. So, so much is changing. Yes, we're going in the right direction. No, it's not slow enough. No, it's not fast enough. I, um, I've got some ideas as to what really needs to be done, but it's, it's much more than just kind of kicking the can down the road with ideas. We, we really have to come to terms, especially in this time, to take a hard look at the shortcomings, the failures, the, the, um, the, the, the things that happen. Uh, that that lead to wrongful convictions, and I'm under the impression that we really should be doing something to speed up the process of reviewing and getting to coming to terms with actual innocence claims that have validity. Um, it takes, on average, 11 years for someone who is actually innocent to get in front of a judge or to have someone uh, review more than just talking their claim of actual innocence, and in many cases. Those 11 years is just enough time for witnesses to die and not be available anymore for, for people who would have talked back then to simply walk away, leave town, 
um, get married and all of a sudden they quote unquote don't want to be bothered anymore. I mean, it's it's a really a, a sad scenario when you think that over an 11 year period, there are people standing in line in lines, thousands individuals long trying to get in front of the right entity to hear what they have to say about the fact that they just didn't do the crime that sent them to prison. Um, it's, it's, I guess you can hear the frustration in my voice, but I, I can tell you when you start getting face to face with the families of these people and they are telling you, look, they, they were here at home. They were asleep. They were at work. They were here. They were there. And how the system doesn't even want to talk to a relative, doesn't even want to allow them to come into court and say, no, he couldn't have done this because, um, and that I, I just hear that so many times. And, uh, and how police intimidate people who can step up and, and help to prove the innocence of individuals because they've just decided that they don't want that particular drug dealer on the street anymore. It's, it's, it's sad, but that's the way it happened. You know, Bill, Bill, we both covered the crime beat for a long time in Detroit as reporters. And, you know, you'd, a, a crime would happen. We would, we would go out to the scene. We'd try and ask what happened. We'll figure out what's going on. And then we'd, we'd work our police sources to, to find out what happened. And then all of a sudden they would, they would get an idea who the suspect was and then they would pursue it. And then they'd go to the prosecutor and they, they would get charges. And it seems like once, once they charge somebody, it was like almost game over. Like the, the, the media, the public, uh, prosecutors, police, everyone decided this person has been charged. So this is what happened. And it seems like it completely shifts now to uh, not so much finding the truth as to convicting the person they originally charged. Do you, do you find that as you dig into these cases, that's, that's what's happening? Well, yeah, um, Kevin, I, I have to admit, and I guess we have to swallow the fact that it's a sad part of our history that in our relatively short window of time to evaluate an event, an event that is a crime where the police essentially are the primary people responsible for evaluating what actually happened. We much too often had to rely on what the police had to say. Um, uh, our turning stories um, within the day that they happened was our, our way of doing business. That's what we did. We tried to make sure the community understood that yes, there's a crime, the police are on it, uh, give them a little bit of time and they will solve it. Um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful scenario, a wonderful arc of facts, and it fit very nicely in a television news day or a couple of days or weeks or maybe even a month if we had a chance to follow through. Um, but we, on too many occasions, uh, were wrong, and we were lied to. And there were people in police agencies that really didn't know and when they tried to tell us, well, look, we'll have to talk to you later, and we were insisting on answers, sometimes those answers drove them to do things they weren't supposed to do. Um, my most glaring example of my failure in that area was for a fellow named uh, Lamar Munson. Um, we had three or four front page above the fold headlines when a 12-year-old girl ended up dead and it turned out that she was a drug dealer, 12-year-old girl inside the city limits of Detroit on the west side and just west of the lodge in an apartment building. They found her body. And um, her boyfriend 
and a lot of other people apparently didn't know that Christina Brown was really 12 years old when she told people she was 17 or 18. She happened to be kind of a statuesque person who could essentially pull off the age claim because she was five foot six, maybe even five foot seven and 120, 130 pounds. And she was kind of cocky and um, she handled herself with adults, but she was a child. And so those headlines were huge. So within a matter of a day or so, when Lamar Munson stood in front of a judge and charged with her murder, for us, it was something that came full circle. The shocking discovery, the shocking event, the shocking fact that the drug problem in Detroit had now killed a 12-year-old. We wrapped it all up in a matter of a week or so, and we were on to the next story. We didn't know that a police lieutenant named Joan Gagoyan had essentially structured out um, a confession that wasn't true. And over and over and over again in the Detroit Police Department, I hear about confessions that the people who signed them insist were not true. And so Lamar Munson went off to prison for life. Or I think maybe he got, say, 25 to 40 years, which could have been a life sentence, because I think it was only second-degree murder that he he, he he signed the confession for. By the time it was over, though, I was one of those people who was still getting calls from his relatives saying, wait a minute, um, no, he's going to college. Yes, he knew that girl. Yes, he might have mistaken her age. Yes, he was wrong for helping putting her in the drug business. But... <laughs> He didn't kill her. And the person who did kill her would have been known to police had they listened. Because there were calls coming into the police department saying, look, you got the wrong guy. You need to look at this fellow over here. And uh, so on the, the last few days of my 33 years at Channel 7, I got a call from a key witness in that case. And she was able to say to me in those first few minutes of the phone call, you, Mr. Proctor, you and all the other reporters in town got it wrong. And of course, that, that hits a reporter right in the middle of the eyes. And so I said, okay, tell me why. And that woman uh, sat in front of a camera before I left Channel 7 and explained that the guy she was with cracking, uh, smoking crack cocaine that night had purchased crack cocaine from Christina Brown, not once but twice. And then when he went back for the third purchase of crack cocaine on credit, she said no, he was infuriated. They scuffled, she scratched him. And apparently there's a, there's a disease that means when you see your own blood, you lose your mind. And that's what this man claims, that when he grabbed the top of a toilet bowl lid and beat the girl to death, that that's what it was going on in his head. And he walked back to my witness and his hands were dripping with blood. There was blood all over his jean jacket. And he said, I killed the bitch. And she said, what the hell are you talking about? And uh, apparently the young woman who was supplying him drugs uh, was dying on the bathroom floor in another apartment in the same building. So in his case, in Lamar's case, um, he was in prison 20 years before I managed to present that witness to the University of Michigan 
because they had already dropped Lamar Munson's case, said they couldn't help him. But we found our witness. She came forward. She passed the polygraph test. She went to court, made her statement. Lamar Munson was released pending trial. And then they decided, the prosecutor's office decided not to try him. Um, that's a long way of saying that, yeah, Kevin, you're, you're exactly right. We, we, we had no choice but to listen to the police. But I, I feel really bad about the fact that over my career, I can think of times when I got calls from relatives who said, hey, they've got my loved one inside, and I know he didn't do it. You know, so Bill, it's I've just been, one of the elements. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a horrific, horrific story. And I did, wasn't planning on asking you this, but, you know, I know that the Detroit Police Department was on federal oversight for many, many years. And a lot of these exonerees that I've been meeting with and we've been doing podcasts on, even the ones I haven't met and I've been just reading about, it seems like the police misconduct happened a long time ago because the people that we're hearing, the people who are making news are 9 to 30 year um, exonerees. They've been in prison for that long. So the police misconduct happened in the 70s and 80s. And then we had the federal oversight into the 90s. And um, do you think the police misconduct that we have been hearing about from all of these cases, you know, from the from the Swift case to the Devante Stansford, from the Lorinda Swain, from the Ken Sue case, they're not all Detroit cases, but do you think that this is still happening today? Do you think the police misconduct trying to railroad these people into prison, into convictions, into wrongful uh, confessions, hiding the DNA evidence, do you think it's as prevalent today as it was back in the day? Um, I don't know if it's as much, but I can tell you it still happens, and we only have to go back five years in Nuevo County. Uh, there are two men in their 40s and 50s at this point, uh, serving life for a murder that a cold case squad from the Michigan State Police figured to put together 25 years after the death of a young woman in Nuevo County. And what I'm hearing about the elements of that case, this was essentially um, community uh, gossip on steroids that turned into uh, people changing stories um, uh, exaggerations of who was where, uh, out and out lies to help people who were in prison get out of prison. I mean, it is the most horrific hodgepodge of crap you've ever seen in your life, and I'm only just getting into it. Well, the answer to your question is somebody gets a wild hair in the wrong place that happens to be on the inside, and yes, they can, in fact, do things that just are not right. Uh, that was just in 2015, and I'm only just getting into that case. So two men, their lives taken away because they happened to be the last two people that the group of teens playing and having a good time uh, knew were with this girl who ended up dead. It is very complicated. You and I just might be talking about that one soon. But I guess the key is your for your answer, unfortunately, the misconduct still happens. Police investigators still threaten potential witnesses. They threaten the relatives. They threaten to take the babies away from the mamas who happen to be on welfare. Um, the misconduct still exists. 
And as this nation is now looking at reforms for the entire criminal justice system, the misconduct that goes into investigations should also be a part of that uh, new evaluation. Yeah, I really, I really feel like police are still pushing to make their cases. Prosecutors are still pushing to get their convictions. And I think maybe one of the biggest problem is that these uh, people who, especially poor people who are charged with a crime, they're not getting quality lawyers. They're not getting lawyers whose heart is in it or or has the skill level to uh, go over some of these things like these bad identifications. Some of these identifications are absolutely ridiculous. Somebody's in a moving car, saw someone, and then they can come back and, and pick them out of a lineup. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then those things aren't getting challenged. And, and they weren't getting challenged back then. And I don't think they're getting challenged today. I think there's such a massive caseload in some of these counties, particularly Wayne County, um, that these cases are just flying through. And these attorneys have so many cases that they don't have the time. And in some cases, the ability to actually ask good questions that need to be asked uh, to find out if these people are actually innocent or guilty. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the numbers are fairly astronomical when you think about uh, criminal defense lawyers and appeals lawyers. Um, okay. You, you, you're facing the capital crime a lawyer will have no problem asking for anywhere from twenty to twenty-five thousand, maybe even thirty thousand uh, dollars, to get the job done on the defense. Then comes the question of, oh, gee, who's going to take care of the appeal? And there are folks in in uh, in 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 Wayne County getting fifteen to twenty grand for the appeals process. These numbers are are just ridiculous for families that are barely putting food on the table. Um, you know, no savings, no assets to sell, uh, that kind of thing. But um, it's just uh, the, 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 the situation of the poor that they are easily pushed around, easily intimidated. Um, sometimes they may be doing something that's not quite within the law to make sure that there's food on the table in the family. So those things are used as pressure points. I mean, it's, it's really ugly. I mean, I, I certainly understand the pressure. I mean, these are government employees. They have salaries. They have supervisors. Uh, supervisors and you know, mayors and council people want to see cases closed. It's 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 a pressure cooker for for the individuals who are supposed to get those cases put together. Um, I mean, everybody knows now that this issue of 48 hours is the key time frame to to solve any any crime. And yeah, sometimes uh, that formula doesn't necessarily fit to reality. Or there are people who know things who won't talk right now, who might take 30 days, who might take three years to talk. It's just a matter of, uh, of, of so many uh, elements of human frailty that sometimes are also a part of wrongful convictions. You know, Kevin, to your question or to your point, you know, on the five or six that I've really taken deep dives on, um, and I talked to Bill about this uh, last week when we spoke at length, it for a layperson, us, not cops, not prosecutors, not judges, what can we control? And as a lawyer, and I'm watching these cases, that's the first point where these families will have any say, will be able to change the course of the defense is by having a good defense lawyer. And like Bill just pointed out, a lot of these people are poor. And they can't afford, I mean, let alone 25 grand, a lot of them can't afford five or $10,000 to get the ball rolling for a decent criminal defense attorney. They're being handed 
court appointment, court appointed lawyers. I don't know what they get paid these days, but I know when I first came out of law school in the early nineties, I used to do a criminal appointment. I'd have to make at least two trips to court and they would pay me $150. Now, luckily I wasn't doing that for the money. I was doing it for the experience at that time, but there are people who take 10 or 15 a day so they can make ends meet and they can't give proper representation. They're looking for quick plea deals. They're not looking to try cases and appeal cases and anything like that. So I'm spending some energy and time looking into that system because two cases that Bill has either reported on or worked on, um, this Walter Swift case um, and Mr. Kensu's case, both had two of the worst lawyers I've ever seen. Both have been disbarred. Both had drinking or drugs problems drug problems. Both have had multiple grievances. I don't know who's vetting these lawyers, but these guys certainly don't give a shit about the people they're representing. And this, this shocking one, this Walter Swift, Kevin, and Bill knows the story. This guy was disbarred and, and, and grieved and did a horrible job for Mr. Swift. And then he went on to the University of Michigan. It was a professor teaching policy and justice and all this kind of crap. And Bill did a story on him before he left. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bill. And he, it was entitled Michigan's Worst Lawyer. And this guy, Lawrence Green, with an E at the end, was uh, him, disbarred twice. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the facts of this case, Kevin. Uh, uh, the, the, the witness or the, the person who was assaulted um, said that uh, the person who assaulted her was 15, 18 year olds, clean shaven and had braids. And uh, Swift, when he's arrested, is much older, had a mustache and had no braids. Okay, never asked about this at his criminal trial. These very easy things that we're talking about. Um, didn't ask about missing evidence. Uh, the prosecutor um, and officer who investigated the case, well, let's just start with the officer, knew that this wasn't the right guy, went on vacation. Another prosecutor charged him, <clears throat> convicted. Before he was sentenced, the original officer went to the judge and said, this is the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy, and here's what happened. Judge didn't listen. Prosecutor didn't listen. Wrong blood type. <laughs> the guy went away for 26 freaking years until Barry Sheck got involved and cried in front of the judge when he was asking for his release and finally got him released. But one of my kids who've never been to law school could have gotten this guy off. And I, I'm so angry at lawyers like this. And I'm also angry at the, at the, the judges and the, and the court of appeals and the Supreme court. And these, there's all these rubber stamps, either the laws are screwed up, which I'm sure they are, or the judges aren't really reading them closely. But like, to, Bill, you kind of alluded to, like, how do you get the attention of the judges to really take these cases seriously? Like when I see, the, when you, when I see people like you, Bill, presenting new evidence, new affidavits, really, really relevant, credible affidavits, and the judges say, nah, it's not material, it's not enough, denied. My head wants to explode, as I'm sure yours do, because you're really in the trenches. I'm just looking at this after the fact. 
But your frustration level, your drinking level, I'm kidding. But it must be through the roof. I mean, these, I, it blows my mind how, how the, the fraud and the misconduct that goes on that, and I, and I sit here thinking, how many people are really sitting there in prison saying they are innocent from day one till now who aren't getting the attention? Like the cases that you're still working on after since since the mid 80s um with you know that have such good evidence nine independent witnesses saying this guy was with me on the kensu case and nobody thinks that that's enough to give him another shot at least another trial um, i mean i don't know how do you deal with this well his is probably one of the more egregious um uh, just completely over the top situations um, unfortunately, his prosecutor was a fellow named Robert Cleland, who we know has been sitting on the federal bench for quite some time. And um, uh, it was just amazing the level of misconduct uh, that took place at trial. I mean, the notion that, uh, uh, yes, the victim was uh, killed with a shotgun blast, but Cleland somehow managed to put six or seven guns of whatever type on the prosecutor's table and essentially talked through the notion that uh, somehow those guns were connected with Kensu when they did not find a single uh, firearm uh, anywhere in his vicinity um, or connected to him at all. Um, there were other crazy elements. Uh, the, uh, the, the actual claim of the prosecution or the innuendo of the prosecution that Mr. Kensu could have gotten on a plane from Escanaba, Michigan, he literally was living in Rock, which is another 20, 30 minutes beyond Escanaba. Got on the plane, clandestinely flew into Port Huron, got out of the plane, somehow got a vehicle to go to the community college where the murder took place, did the shooting, get back to the plane and fly back so his alibis would all fall into place. I mean, so many elements of lunacy were a part of this prosecution, including the drug-addicted um, uh, occasionally disbarred uh, lawyer. I mean, that one... David David Dean, who I researched yeah. today, I think he's dead now, he was a coke addict, was eventually disbarred. He, uh, Kensu, had, was with his fiance at the time of the murder, and there was nine other people with them. This lawyer, Ke uh, Kevin, never called the fiance at the jury trial. If I was going to call anybody, it'd be my only witness. He was with me. I mean, I I don't get it. And I know that there's some conspiracy theories out there that Judge Cleland is putting his foot on this and 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 it doesn't want Ken Sue out because there is a lot of talk. It's on Mayor. It's on Mayor. It's on uh, Governor Whitmer's desk to look at to to think about clemency and in in a pardon. But you know. Judge Cle Cleland is a court. Uh, he's uh, for life. He he can't. He's not going up for election again or ever. Um, is is a federally appointed judge. Do you really think there's any validity that he's pulling some strings behind the scenes, making sure that he doesn't get out? I th there's no way I could go that far. Um, I I we may suspect it. We, we, <laughs> Um, I, I, I guess the shocking part is that right in Detroit, 
um, Denise Page Hood, the judge who might have been even the chief judge at that unit at the time, came up with three different appeals elements that she agreed with. And they went to Cincinnati. And for some reason, they all were essentially dismissed as not having credibility. But she had him in a position to get a new trial. And the questions are spinning, of course. Well, Cleveland was in the building when she made that decision. Um, did he touch base with some other conservatives in Cincinnati and get this done? Look, I, I'm in no position to say anything like that. Um, it would be sad if it's true, but no, I, I can't say that. What I can say is that uh, uh, Fred Freeman, Timogen Kinsu, has been a fighter from day one. He told everybody who would listen he didn't do it. He went on camera with me and said he didn't do it. I got him a polygraph, one of the last ones given um, in, uh, wait a minute, let me take that back. It wasn't the last one given in the prison, but I did get him a polygraph in prison that he passed. Um, and uh, I guess the story that I did with him that ran that week long series was one of the last times that uh, news cameras were allowed to come inside the prison system because soon after that, and after us uh, pointing out this case, uh, John Engler um, and the uh, and the guards union got together to essentially bar news cameras from Michigan prisons uh, forever, and it's never been overturned, despite efforts of uh, of uh, Barbara Walters and Geraldo Rivera and a couple of networks going to federal court. It was never reversed. So yeah, a, a lot of damage came out of the Kensu case, and yes, he's still inside. Yes, he has suffered uh, the virus. And yes, uh, he has a number of health problems that could take him at any time. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's it's one of the more incredible, crazy cases. Do, do you think uh, this would have happened in this case and other cases if, if there wasn't so much immunity? Um, it, it just strikes me, um, and there's a lot of talk about it with what's going on right now in the world. But, uh, you know, you were a police officer, Bill, in another life. Uh, do, do the police deserve the immunity they get? Do, do uh, prosecutors, judges, uh, you know, it just seems if there's possibly more accountability when wrongdoing was discovered, uh, it might not happen in the first place. Um, absolutely. And if there was knowledge and understanding that, no, you can't with impunity uh, carry through these horrific acts, um, whether they be uh, uh, physical violence or in some cases process violence, uh, because by the time you look at it, what a police officer hands to a prosecutor, what a prosecutor kind of uh, looks the other way or turns uh, his or her back on because of what they got from police that either fell short, that they got together and created and made stronger. I mean, there are just so many elements to this. Um, some of them political, some of them just, just from bad attitudes or bad personal experiences. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, it's just really difficult all, all around. And yes, the issue of immunity is a major factor uh, that it does happen. Um, prosecutors, I think, uh, you know, get sworn. <laughs> and after they're sworn, there's a virus that takes them over. Uh, it, they just become some of the meanest people on the planet, uh, not wanting to hear the fact that their prosecution might have walked down the wrong road. Um, I, I would, If I was a prosecutor, I think I'd be furious at any cop that didn't tell me everything, everything, everything about a case, including what might be exculpatory or including what might be information that came from sources that may be 
questionable or not credible that they feel that they could just blow off and not investigate. And that I think is a part of the problem. Um, in that's February, why, yeah, go ahead. Ahead. no, no, that's why Kevin, I was so impressed with Carl Marlinga hmm, when yeah. he helped, he helped get the DNA testing approved and he was on, he was there on the day that Kenny was let out of prison after all those years. Cause what just Bill just said is so true that prosecutors, you know, Carl said it on our show. He said, we are here to seek justice. We are not here just to get convictions. And what Bill's saying is that just 90, 90 plus percent of the people don't feel that way. They are there manipulating behind the scenes, trying to get convictions at all costs. Cause that's how they are. That's how their job is, is weighed. And I, I understand wanting to win. Okay. I get it, but you have rules and and they can't get sued. Cops barely can get sued. And so this qualified immunity that everybody has, it's a good question. If we got rid of that, would they become a little bit more honest and be fearful of that civil lawsuit that could happen in so many of these cases that we have talked about? Well, um, there's a, <laughs> boy, my, my, my head's spinning it, uh, as to examples. Um, um, there was a really bizarre uh, case um, out of um, Flat Rock some years back. And there were two men who eventually were looked at and charged and convicted for uh, killing a drug dealer. Well, one of those two men on the night of the murder literally had clocked in to a Ford Motor Company plant on the night shift on his first day at work and was working the assembly line. And anybody who knows what an assembly line is knows that no, you can't even go to the bathroom. Once you start the line and each one of those workers has a specific responsibility, it's usually timed, the timing is close, the timing can't be altered. And when you're on an assembly line, you're there and that's it. Well, they managed to go and convince a jury <laughs> that this young man on the first day of his job somehow slipped out of the plant, which is damn near impossible with security, went and did the murder and came back. And 12 jurors heard that, believed it, and convicted. And a judge who's still on the bench downtown heard both of those cases at once, which I think was a very difficult responsibility, but did not intervene in what appeared to be ludicrous and impossible and that person went to prison and was al almost murdered in prison. Uh, his first name is James. He managed to take the very information I just gave you to the appeals court. And without going for a second hearing, the appeals court literally signed him out of prison. Wow. He, he walked right from the appeals court. The other co-defendant is still in prison because the lunacy of his conviction just didn't make any sense. They signed him out. And here recently, after being in for about five years and almost being stabbed to death in prison, he ended up with a more than a million dollar uh, settlement. Um, and so he can restart his life. But this is a man who almost lost his life in prison where he wasn't supposed to be. So these things happen over and over and over again. And, and there are failures along the way. 
Mike, I know you've been looking at some of these cases, and I wanted to ask you about this, but I wanted to ask you about it too, Bill. And that's a, this this whole jailhouse snitch situation. I mean, does this come about like when a prosecutor says they're looking at the cases? Ah, maybe we don't have enough. Why don't we put a, a someone in, in in the jail cell with them and see what we can get? If if it, if it rolls out like that, to me, it feels like man, it's almost like intentional that they're they're pushing so hard to get a conviction. Uh, you know, when they may not have the evidence to support it. And I'm I'm just curious. These things. I mean, they, it seems like there's a jailhouse snitch for every every these, major case. I mean, that, who are these jailhouse snitches? And yeah, come on, these guys are these guys are scumbags. As you saw in Kenny's case, the Kensu case had one. Most cases somehow do. And how the jurors are not blown away by this, either the defense attorneys are not doing a good job pointing it out. They're all getting deals for lesser sentences. They're getting deals to help other, you know, their relatives. They're getting uh, parole, paroled earlier. And all they got to do is lie, right? Well, why wouldn't they? What do they have to lose? So, you know, there's been talk about trying to, trying to get them not to be able to be used, you know, get laws to, that, that they can't, but it's not there. It's just, it's a credibility issue. It's all up to the defense attorney to point it out, to discover the relationship, to, to point out the deal, to show what a lying piece of garbage this person is. As in all these cases, they sign an affidavit after they're out for many years because they feel bad. And it's just total bullshit. And I don't know, you know, it's, I don't think it's very hard to find a jailhouse snitch, but I've never had to find one. I've never actually had to cross-examine one, but it certainly doesn't sound like it'd be very hard to do. But with these, some of these loser attorneys that some of these people have had, they don't even question them. They don't even know how to question them. They don't know how to do a cross-examination or they're drunk or they're on drugs. It's, it's, it's pretty bad. And the judges should not allow them. There should be motions to suppress their testimony. They should be able to get all of the details of their deal. They should get all of the recordings, all of the writings, everything under the sun. And it certainly doesn't look like they're being provided the information. And if they are being provided the information, the defense attorneys are not being effective enough to point it out to the juror, juries to make reasonable doubt. And, and it looks, in my opinion, if they have to use a jailhouse snitch, and I think this was pointed out in some of these cases, it shows how weak, and it shows how desperate the prosecution is to use these scumbags to get a conviction. You know, when insurance companies bring out the garbage defenses, it's because they don't have a good case. And so in my opinion, this is the same type of thing. But Bill, I'll be curious to think, hear what you have to think about jailhouse snitches. Well, there are names in Michigan's criminal justice system that essentially are synonymous with closing cases. Um, there are snitches, male and female, that are like on a, on a list. Gee, do you need somebody to play the jailhouse snitch role? Uh, where is so-and-so locked up right now? Can we move him left, move him right, and get him close to the person we need to help support our case? Now, yeah, it's happened in Detroit a lot. Uh, individuals who are responsible for more than two dozen convictions because of what they said on the stand that was very likely manufactured. But in Kenny Wanemko's case in particular, one of the more egregious situations happened because 
Linda Davis was an assistant prosecutor under Carl Marlinga at the time. She, and there is a federal document to support this, literally went with a police officer into a jail, picked out an individual they thought was close to Ken Winemko, and essentially she orchestrated exactly what that man had to say about what she needed the snitch to say against Kenny Winemko. Um, it was horrific and detailed, and yes, I can say that, and Judge Linda Davis sat on the bench for quite a while, and now that she's retired, she has never been called to the carpet to explain what that federal document says, and apparently when she was, they essentially let her walk away with no admonishment, no punishment. I mean, I, I think something like that is criminal, and unfortunately, I don't think uh, it will ever happen, and uh, uh, I don't even think the embarrassment of, uh, of her being shown um, uh, kind of sneering at uh, Kenny Winemko's innocence in, in that hour-long piece is enough. I think a lot more should be done in that particular case where I it was she deliberate. Should, she should be sued. She should be investigated. Um, the fact, you know, I, I saw that interview and, and the snitch said, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, if you said it, I would know it. But that he he was left the police report. To read. Like what was it? Was it McConnell or something like that? McCormick. Maybe. McCormick, maybe. Um, yeah, I agree with you. That was one of the most egregious cases. But you know, it, it, they they keep coming up, and again, it comes back to having a good defense attorney to find all that stuff out that you were just saying before the jury trial. But then, in Kenny's case, his defense attorney had forty-eight hours to prepare for that rape trial. Yeah. Right. Who the hell has time to, to, to do anything in 48 hours? Even if it was a great, great, great attorney, you, you don't have time. So that judge, Judge Schwartz in that case, that Carmelinga was very adamant about, was a terrible judge. It, and and I, don't, I don't think I've ever met that judge who was in front of him. So I, I, don't have, I don't have that knowledge. But he was very clear that he made some really bad calls. And he was very clear about Linda Davis and his thoughts on her um, and her, his thoughts on her and the cop that investigated it. I mean, that case to me had, I mean, I've told Kenny this, it better become, a, it should be a movie one day because you can't get more messed up facts than that case. That had it all. That mm -hmm. had the bad prosecutor, the bad judge, the bad defense attorney, the jailhouse snitch, and on and on and on. Um, but... You know, I think, I think, Bill. It's as I'm as we're talking. It's it's really clear how important it is for the media to call these things out. And I thank you for being a trailblazer in that, because I didn't realize how. I mean, you shared with me off, you know, before we went on, and I don't know if you want to talk about it, but how you were shunned, for lack of a better word. Um, when you first started bringing people's attention to these wrongful convictions, and I vaguely remember that, you know, it's been a long time now. Now they're in vogue almost. It's like you hear about them every other day, and they're all over Facebook and whatever. Thank God. But back then, it was like, oh, wait, hey, wait, hey, you know, we went, we went, had a jury trial, and this is the system, and wrongful convictions were, were taboo. Um, certainly not recognized as even being possible. And uh, uh, it, it was amazing how many 
reporters came at me essentially for upsetting the victim's family for uh, supposedly being uh, hoodwinked uh, by the guy in prison. Um, I guess they didn't either see or care to see uh, all the witnesses that I went to find uh, people that didn't necessarily like Ken Su, who had uh, um, you know very easy um, uh, ability to place him someplace else, um, uh, certainly many, many miles away, hundreds uh, of miles away. Um, and uh, but but it's okay because back in 1995, when that first that first series went on, um, I started getting more letters from prison. I started getting um, uh, more thoughts. I mean, and eventually, um, some years later, I took six weeks off without pay from Channel Seven because I had a lead on what really happened there, and I connected a defense lawyer to the source of that information. He's still in prison on a murder. And even now, what he has to say is valid about this case. And with his testimony, if we get it before he dies, Kensu may have a road to freedom even after all these years. Um, I'm not necessarily front line on this uh, anymore, but but I, I think it can happen. I'm really concerned about another fellow who's in since uh, February of 1973 for a murder he didn't commit because I talked to the killer. I talked to the co-conspirator. Ray Gray should not be in prison. Um, and, and yes, we have a lawyer at this point. We're chasing money to support Ray's case. Uh, but yeah, I um, to, to answer your earlier question, Mike, I, uh, I, I, I do this and I don't let it bring me down because the phone may ring again. And, and I may get another lead towards another potential exoneration. And uh, it pains me to know how many I can't save. But if I get the opportunity to save another one tomorrow, um, I'm ready. Okay, Kevin, could you imagine talking to the real killer like Bill has? And he says, that guy's in prison, but I did the crime. And Bill can't. And these judges won't listen. And the Court of Appeals judges don't believe it. it I mean, I, I can't imagine that. Uh, Vincent Smothers did that. He, he, you know, he he told everyone. He told reporters he did it. He told police he did it, and uh, they just said, "Nah, he didn't do that. He, he killed these other people, but he's lying about this one. We'll take his confession on this one, but not on that one." And you know, in in, in his case, he even he told them where the gun was, and they and they test it, and they find out it's the right gun, right? So they still don't believe him. So this is what drives me crazy is. There's this science. Science is science, you know, but it seems like prosecutors and police can use it to get a conviction with some, you know, convoluted science. And then when you have real science that can get somebody out, it's pushed away or you can't get a hearing. I mean, if you've got science, get to the front of the line, present your science and get out of there. Don't don't spend a day, let alone what you say, 11 years trying to get out when, when you have real evidence. It, it's maddening. I mean. So, yeah, so, so Bill, Bill, I want to bring this to current day events. Um, and with everything that's been going on in the media after George Floyd's murder, and I want to know in, in, in your expertise around the world of wrongful convictions, is there systemic racism? Is it happening more often to blacks versus whites? Are you have you seen that in your in your many year career? 
Unfortunately, when you look at the numbers, the answer is yes. Um, there are people in, in African-American communities uh, that are well, not necessarily set upon, but they are, they are instant suspects. And um, it's difficult to move away from uh, being tagged as the person responsible, even though some other African-American may be responsible if it turns out that the race of the individual is, is a part of what the witnesses saw or the victims uh, can talk about. Um, it's, it's unfortunate because it really is about poor communities where bad choices are made by individuals who find themselves walking out a, a road to criminality in some cases to survive, um, but in many cases to take advantage and to get ahead or, 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 or to, to get a wife or whatever the reason is. I mean, it's, it's difficult. And yes, unfortunately, race plays a part. And when you look at the National Registry of Exonerations, the percentages will tell you that in this country where African-Americans are between 14 and 15% of the population, half of the prison system is African-American or Hispanic. Um, so, um, or those on the inside. So it certainly points that way. Um, I can't necessarily walk away from the issue of race, but uh, the numbers certainly speak for themselves in many, many, many areas. So as you're hearing all the cries to defund police, does this have anything to do with your world? And what are your opinions on that? Um, no, I, I don't think defunding the police or shutting down police departments is the answer by any means. A lot of people who are angry about uh, what we have seen, what families have experienced and suffered with the deaths of their uh, loved ones um, uh, uh, should not cause them to essentially push away, dismantle, or fire everybody uh, with a badge because the time may come when each and every one of them will need a police response. What we're hoping to get is a better police response, a lawful police response, a fair response from police who, who do not present themselves as being hateful or racist or inhumane in their approach. That's what needs to be done, not the defunding of the police. I think people are actually looking to move money from police budgets to get other help with police work. Because yeah, the police are responsible for so many things. They have to be social workers. They, they have to be responders to, to, to people who, who are mentally ill. Um, they, they, they have to be emergency responders when somebody is hurt. Um, police work is multifaceted. The responsibilities are very high. But this thuggish behavior that we see on camera in so many cases um, is just that. These are men who have badges, who are out of control, who should not be police officers. Um, and there are good examples of good, reasonable police work responding to emergencies that could turn into something fatal, but they have to take the time to be reasonable with what and who it is they face. And if they don't do that, then you end up with people dead that are not supposed to be. Uh, George Floyd was one of those. I mean, let's face it, this was a big guy. He towered above all those other cops around him. And I think they just kind of decided, hey, big guy, we're going to we're going to take you out. 
And I'm sorry, I didn't see anything on any tape from any angle that said they should have been doing anything except putting this man with handcuffs in the back of the car for whatever level of adjudication. And from what I'm hearing about what brought them there in the first place, it was what looked like a phony $20 bill. I'm under the impression that that the, the, the uh, a, a policeman's uh, charge in that area was to take the 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 ID of the person who supposedly passed the bill, take the bill, and the person gets to leave because no genuine felony was ever proven just because somebody tries to pass a bad twenty. In so many cases like that, nobody knows they got a bad twenty dollar bill, and that likely was what was happening here. So no. Uh, defunding the police. Um, I, I think that's a bad word for this. If we want to divert funds from police budgets to do other things, then that what's, that's what the discussion should be. But no, no community of any size or ilk should be without a police department. Elon Musk tweeted in the last day or two, selling weed literally went from major felony to the essential business open during pandemic in much of America, and yet many are still in prison. Doesn't make sense, does it? And I know that's not exactly what we've been talking about and what your expertise is, but it made me think, you know, should we open the doors to everybody who was convicted of a, a weed offense today? What's I don't, your opinion on that? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that, that, that the criminal justice system and illegal drugs um, somehow came to a bad crossroads uh, years ago. Maybe it was political. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, the drug business can turn deadly because of what one person will do to another. That part of, of, of drug conspiracies should certainly uh, be looked at very closely. But the mere distribution of marijuana that is now legal, if that's all that somebody is in for, I don't think there's any doubt that there should be an immediate hearing and some sort of a decision as to just how long this current sentence is and where they are. And that person should be considered for release because, um, you know, we, we never talk about money until the money's already spent. And when you talk about the cost of having one person in, in a Michigan prison these days, um, I, I think the numbers would certainly help us with the budget where roads need, need to be fixed. And yeah, if we could close two, three, four prisons because of people with minor offenses uh, or, 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 or not felony or uh, death offenses, assaultive offenses, I, I, I think we could help ourselves and I think we could help the community. Yes. So I see a lot of people trying to figure out how to give back during these days, which excites me that they want to give back. They want to volunteer. They want to give money to certain organizations dealing with black people and uh, the oppression that, that has been around for hundreds of years, but they wanna start doing things now. When it comes to innocence projects, and we, I'm using that term loosely because there's so many different angles, what's, what's your opinion as, as to you know, the best organizations out there for people to support if they are really upset by, by wrongful convictions? Well, there are organizations that, uh, that, that have presented themselves well. If I'm not mistaken, um, uh, the Innocence Project out of New York uh, has somewhere between a 15 and a $22 million annual budget. Um, 
they are kind of the uh, uh, the beehive for all of us around the country. Um, and they have led well. Uh, they are the creators of the Innocence Conference. So every year we get to hear the latest that has come out of court rulings, um, reevaluations of science, process and procedure changes. I mean, all of those things essentially come out of the beehive, which is the Innocence Project out of New York. And the Innocence Conference allows all of us who have uh, some work to do in this area to hear the latest and to be up to date and to get direction and counsel uh, as to how to do it best. So um, my my answer to the question is of, of, of where, where money should go, it probably is in your own state, your own community. I mean, there are organizations um, that have, uh, have list, listed themselves. Some are 501c3s. My Seeking Justice uh, is an advocacy organization uh, and, and that's what we do is just provide information. I'm a licensed private investigator. And yeah, if I had regular contributions, I could give pro bono work where I really can't afford to now. So the answer is, I think a little evaluation of where your money can best be spent. There are lots of places in this area and quite frankly, just paying a little bit more attention uh, and being able to, to put money in places that's needed uh, would certainly help to get us in a better place. So tell, tell our viewers and listeners what SeekingJusticeBP.org is all about. Um, we're, we're a website where we, we tell the stories that haven't been told or tell the stories that are current, um, where uh, there, there is some questionable approach of the criminal justice system in a case towards people, towards neighborhoods, towards um, um, uh, issues of, uh, of, of environment. Um, of, of, of things that really are done by government agencies that are not helping um, or are hurting people. Um, so the, the, the idea of seeking justice can run in lots of different directions. Um, our, our concentration has been on wrongful convictions and what to do about them. And so uh, there, uh, it's a matter of attention. It's a matter of maybe if you only got a few dollars, uh, you know, buy one of our hats or, uh, or, or some of the other little merchandise we have. But I guess the key is that, um, yeah, these are, these are expensive reversals um, to get somebody out of prison and to do all of the communication and uh, work in law, uh, writing appeals, 6,500 motions. Uh, the, these are expensive propositions that are a part of the system. And so if you really believe in someone's innocence after you've heard what evidence you can find then maybe just uh, moving along to help get those things done is the way anyone should proceed. Well, the Mike Morse Law Firm, we want to help uh, find people who should be exonerated and we want to support your organization. So in the near future, um, you and I should talk and, and we would like to set up a matching gift program so people will hear about your organizations and support them and the Mike Morse Law Firm will match their contributions. And if you're open to that, um, you and I should talk and we will, uh, we can make some kind of announcement and uh, film something so you and I can get it out to the community so they can know exactly what you're doing and, and your two organizations because I know you have ProvingInnocence.org too, which is doing some good work and SeekingJusticeBP.org, which is doing some good work, and we want to support your efforts. 
and try to make a difference in Detroit and in, and in our beautiful state of Michigan in helping these people and their well, families. We really appreciate the offer uh, for proving innocence. Um, I'm sure there's a board meeting we can get you to um, just to just to have you there for a few minutes and and to see the depth and breadth of uh, what these folks, many of them civilians, essentially outside of the criminal justice system. But we we do have a couple of law professors who are a part of it, uh, people in, in psychiatry and counseling. Uh, so by the time you see some of the information, some of the people who are on the board and and where their hearts are, where their commitment has been, uh, I'm sure you'll 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 figure out what you want to do there. As far as uh, seeking justice is concerned, um, <laughs> uh, all I can say is come on down. We've uh, we've got uh, we got work to do, and uh, yes, uh, financial support would certainly help. So thank you. My pleasure, our pleasure. And um, we'll send me an invitation for that board meeting. I'll, I'll show up, whether it be virtual or in person. And I really appreciate you sharing our stories, your stories with us. And I think that, you know, we left a lot on the table. We didn't dive deep into any of the particular cases, which I, I want to do when we have more time. Um, because I think that if people read these stories, watched the series on Netflix called, what's it called? Innocence. Proving yeah, Innocence. I, I don't, I don't know the name, but but one one of the I watched it. Innocence something. Yeah. Kenny Wanko's story, and I should know it right now. I'll put it up on the screen. I'll put it in our show notes. Um, I just watched uh, a couple of the episodes. But when you dig into these cases, there's no, there's not. You can't write a better drama show. You shouldn't be watching anything else until you watch and learn about all this. I've made my kids watch it. They're, they can't believe it. And, you know, we got to get the stories out because people will be infuriated. Hearing about these snitches, hearing about the Linda Davises, hearing about the Judge Schwartzes. I mean, <coughs> infuriated. And uh, whatever we can do to help get the word out, whatever my firm can do to help, do some pro bono work and, and help. I mean, as I told you on the phone last week, I, I think there should be an organization or a, I, I, this is probably impossible, but when somebody is claiming their innocence throughout the process and they're being railroaded and they got a 48 hours to try a, a, a rape case or a murder case, they need to have a button to push or raise their hand that, that you or someone from my firm or somebody comes running to, to figure out, does this defense attorney know what the hell they're doing. I mean, that's really it. I, I can't, you, prosecutors, you can't control. Judges, you can't control. But making sure that that defense attorney has the resources, knows the right questions to ask. Make sure that, the, the, that they have investigators because investigators are a huge part of it. Yeah. Defense attorneys don't know how to investigate, right? Am I right? I mean, they that's don't. They, they rely on good investigators to get witness statements, to uncover evidence, to find out if the lineups were done right, to find out if there's any other witnesses, to find out, have the police talk to everybody, to help create a defense for the defense attorney to try and defend a big case. And I know that's just, I mean, you would need, you told me on the phone about a billion dollars. <laughs> In Michigan alone, probably. Thousands of cases. Thousands. There's thousands of cases. There's hundreds of murders. And a lot of and, and these defense these these court appointed attorneys 
are, are running thin and they're not making much money. I don't know what they make. Bill, you don't know what they make, do you, per case? Well, I'm, I'm thinking that that, that uh, assignment number uh, for downtown in particular, I think, is, is now up to $200 instead of the 125 that you got years ago. It, it may be 250 I don't know, but it's certainly not enough impetus to have somebody commit to truly defending someone who was innocent. Not even um, close. Yeah, before, <laughs> before we go, it wasn't very long ago at all, November 2016, uh, where the 11 o'clock news was filled with images of a carjacking in Greektown out in front of Nicky's. And uh, there was a young man who was wearing a University of Michigan sweatshirt with a hood. And he walked up to this poor lady and he pointed what may have been a handgun. She surrendered the keys. He drove off on this silver four-door. And unfortunately, when the police got started listening to telephone calls and, and people suggesting who might have been responsible, what they were looking for was a, a match to the University of Michigan sweatshirt. They found a guy. And unfortunately, his somewhat drug-affected mother looked at the videotape on TV and said, yeah, that looks like my son. And they wrote that in the police report. And by the time it was over, he didn't get a trial. He went in after the prelim and heard what they could do to him. And after his own mother said, gee, that looks like my kid, he was cooked. He's now inside despite the fact that I know the father of the young man who was the real carjacking suspect, all right? And so how can we get it? You talk about a bad lawyer. The lawyer in that case was confronted during the trial, uh, during the prelim, by a guy who said, you know what? Your guy didn't do it, and I know who did. And gee, I can't tell you because I'm, well, I might be related to him, but you, this, this isn't right. You got to fix it. Not only did he do that, and the lawyer didn't call a cop and say, hey, would you get this guy's ID for me? Because only a cop would have been able to show the badge and say, look, there may be something to you that we need to know who you are. Give me your driver's license. Only a cop could have done that. The lawyer let him walk out of the building without finding out who in the hell it was. That man has since written a letter to the, to the current inmate saying, hey, man, I'm sorry you're in there, but, and that was the end of that. Well, guess what? Uh, it, it came to me, and I'm now trying to convince you to step up. And it's 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 been difficult, but yeah, that's that's one of those where help and money would be necessary to get us where we need to be for an innocent young man who's got to do at least another seven years, if not twenty, uh, for a crime he didn't commit. And you told me about that case where they the the cops or prosecutors threatened his family with further crimes unless he pled guilty, even though he knew he didn't do it. So that's just another element of getting these wrongful confessions overturned, yeah. which is probably harder because the person confessed, it's probably on tape. And, that, and then they say after they've been sitting in prison, oh, I, I, I didn't mean it, I didn't do it. But when you look why they did it and you look at the threats and you look at the parents who are probably not too smart, not too educated and- And don't have money for appeals and don't have money for appeals, made some bad decisions. Um, what a cluster. It makes it so much harder. So many more layers that you have to go through. It's not just, I mean, you, in those cases, you're dealing with somebody who said, yeah, I did it, and then they changed their mind. It's not a guy who, like Kensu, who said he was innocent from day one. Day one. And so did Ray Gray from and, day one. And never changed their mind and never said, you know, okay, I did it. No, I didn't do it. Um, 
I found it interesting that some of these innocent projects won't take a case with wrongful confessions. They only take cases from people who have denied it from day one, not who changed their mind. Because unfortunately, a lot of people who are in prison did it. And then they later say, no, I didn't. And uh, I get why that's something that people have to deal with and when they're choosing where to put resources to help these people. It's difficult. And there's no doubt we have a lot of work to do, but uh, you know, we can we can find some success. Okay. Well, thank you for being with us, Bill. Thank you for all you do. And I look forward to talking to you. I look forward to coming to your, ball, your uh, meeting, your board meeting next time. And thanks for being on Open Mic. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Okay. Well, thanks for watching another episode of Open Mic. I'm Mike Morse with Kevin Dietz. Today we had on Bill Proctor. Very interesting, complicated conversation, wasn't that? Uh, really, so much more to dig into. I mean, it just you just tear a little bit of the onion back and you just want to find out more and more and more. I have a feeling we'll be having him on again soon. We didn't dive into the weeds as much as I would have liked. If anybody's out there curious about innocence, you should... Go to the Innocence Project's websites. Go to Bill's website, ProvingInnocence.com. Go to SeekingJusticeBP.org. And there's lots of shows on Netflix and lots of stories out there that you won't believe. The Kenny Wanako story that we mentioned in the show. It is mind-blowing, the misconduct. And, and, and the, it's just overwhelmingly sad. So I recommend you go watch, go read up. If you liked the show, please like it. Please share with your friends and family and subscribe to our YouTube channels or other podcast channels because we love what we're doing and we wanted to hear from you to make sure that you love it. And if you have any suggestions, email me, text me, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Open Mic. So thank you very much. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one -on -one my whole career. What you're going to hear. We've got a lot of desperate people in the city. On my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts.